Please take out your copy of God's Word. Begin turning to Genesis chapter 13, page 9 in the Pew Bible in front of you. You guys hear me back there? Am I loud enough? Balcony, is that loud enough? Am I good? Okay, I feel quiet. As we've been looking at Abram, soon to be Abraham, same person, remember? We have been looking the last two sermons at the nature of faith. Abram is the father of faith. And so we've been graciously given here in God's word a picture of what faith is. We've seen that it trusts, it obeys, it worships. It is the, if it's the nature of God to speak, that means that it is the nature of God's people to hear. Romans ten seventeen. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Seeing is not believing, as we're going to see. Hearing is believing. Abram has heard the word of God. He has heard the promises of God, and then he has acted upon them. He has trusted the word he heard. He has obeyed the word he heard. And that's what it really means to hear. If I walk down to the basement and tell my girls to clean it, and I say, did you hear me? And they say, yes, daddy. But then I come down 30 minutes later, and it's not clean. Right? Then they have not really heard me right, in the way that I intended to be heard. Right? To hear is to obey. Faith is hearing. But it's not always easy. And that's what we looked at last week. Faith's imperfect response to grace, where we saw Abram's faith falter and waver and struggle. God has said he was going to do something for Abram. Abram faced something that seemed to get in the way of that, and Abram failed to believe. He failed to trust God in that moment. But, wonderfully, we saw God protect and preserve Abram's faith. We saw him do that by first protecting and preserving his wife from what could have potentially been devastating consequences for her. And then we saw God even bless Abram in a way that he definitely did not deserve. Abram messes up. God does not. Abram fails to trust God's promises. God does not fail to keep his promises. So what next? What, what happens after something like that? What happens after an obstacle? Well, it's actually going to be another obstacle. It's going to be another potential problem in the way of the promise. But if you, got, if you know the story, Genesis 13, it's a bit of an odd chapter. Genesis 12, as we've argued, is the central chapter of the whole book. It's one of the handful of the most important chapters in the whole Bible. Plus, there's the, then there's the intrigue of Abram's wife and Pharaoh. Then next week, the next chapter, 14, has it all. There are kings at war. There's a chase. There's a historic, uh, heroic rescue. And then there's the mysterious figure of Melchizedek, which we'll have to figure out. So 14 is a great chapter. But then there's 13, which seems to largely be about some guys arguing over land for their animals. That's kind of strange. Why is this here? Always be asking yourself that as you read God's word. What is the purpose of this story? God never does things randomly or arbitrarily. Why did God record this story and preserve it for us? And ultimately, I'm going to argue that it's because of the promises. Don't forget the promises. The promises are the point of 13 and the whole story of Abram. God has promised a blessing, a seed, a land. God has said that he was going to do something for and through Abram. Would he? Could he come through? That's what this whole chapter is about. 
I listen to lots of sermons, 10, 12, maybe more sermons a week. I like to see what other people are doing and see if I'm doing something crazy. Uh, Every sermon I listen to got this chapter wrong, I think. That sounds arrogant, but I think they got it wrong. This chapter is not about how to be content. This chapter is not about how Christians handle conflict. This chapter is not about sharing. All of those are things that we could touch on in the course of the sermon, but they're not the point. The point is the promise. From the beginning, God has been all about making for himself a people. We complicated that with our sin, but that didn't stop God. That didn't change the plan. And he has promised now to do that through Abram. And if you are in Christ, God is all about making for himself a people. And he has promised to do that for you through and in Christ. He has promised to make you like Christ. That is his promise, his word of what he will do. And guys, what I want you to get, if you get one thing this morning, is that God's promises are everything. We're going to see it at the end, sing it at the end. It's a little bit hokey sounding of a hymn, but I love standing on the promises of God, right? Standing on the promises that cannot fail. That's what this story is about. This is what it looks like to stand on the promises of God, but more importantly, this is what it looks like for God to carry out and to execute those promises. So this is here to show us how God continues to keep his promise to Abram in the face of even another obstacle, and then so encourage you that this same God can and will keep his promise to you. He always acts in accordance with his word. He always does what he says. So take heart. Be reminded of that and thus be encouraged to keep standing on the promises, which means ultimately to keep the faith, to keep trusting. So if last week, while looking at faith, we focused mainly on the fact that our only hope is that it is God who ultimately preserves our faith. Here again, we want to see and celebrate the fact that it is God who preserves his promises, which means again, great news. God's promises are not dependent upon you. Good news. The good things that God has promised will happen because God cannot fail to perform his word and to preserve his promise. So let's see how he does that here for Abram. And in so doing, we want to be encouraged that he does and will do the same thing for us. So we're going to have four points about God's promises. We're going to see, here's the point of the promises here, why God makes promises is that God's promises bring blessing. But then strangely, we're going to see that God's promises also bring strife, which results then in God's promises bringing separation. But then we're going to conclude wonderfully in seeing that God's promises bring even more and even as we read in Hebrews 11, better blessings. So we're all about the promises and what God is doing here in chapter 13. Let's read it. We looked at one through four a little bit last week, but we're going to read this whole chapter and still kind of touch on those verses to set the stage. So I'll read for you Genesis chapter 13, verses one through 18. Pay attention because this is what God wants to say to you today. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had and lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first, 
And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. If you would, bow with me, and let's begin by first going to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that before time began, you ordained that this, not only would this word be recorded and preserved for these 3,000 years, but that we would be here gathered together in this place with this people on this date, reading and trying to understand this word. So, Father, we know that your will is good. We know that your providence is perfect. And so we ask that you would take this word that you have ordained for us this day and that you would speak to us through it. I ask that you would help me and that your spirit would empower the word to do your work. I pray that you would help us to see the goodness of your promises, the assurity of your promises, and that we would try and get comfort and hope and security and joy in the fact that you will perform all that you have promised. Father, I pray for anyone in here today who is struggling, who is unsure, who is afraid, who is doubting. Father, bring your comfort through your word. Father, point us forward to your son, Jesus Christ. Uh, in this time, we pray in his name. Amen. All right, so we briefly looked at verses 1 through 4 last week. We focused on the fact that Abram returns to worship God in verse 4. But today I want to focus on the blessing of God in these first few verses. Verse 1, Abram has escaped Egypt with his life. That's grace. God has preserved him and his wife. That's grace in spite of his faltering faith. Abram has faltered. God has been faithful. But don't miss something a bit strange but important. In verse 1, Lot, Abram went up and Lot went with him. Now, we weren't told that Lot went down into Egypt with him, but apparently he did. And now our attention is being drawn back to Lot. 
Why? Why are we talking about Lot? Why does this whole chapter revolve around Lot? This is actually the first of three Lot stories, sometimes called the Lot Trilogy. That's a lot of Lot. Right? Sorry, it had to happen one time. So, so why Lot? Well, again, remember who Lot is. We are introduced to him back in 1127 as Haran's son. Haran is Abram's brother who died before Abram left Ur. Thus, Lot is Abram's nephew, and he ends up traveling with Abram. We're going to come back in point three and make sure we understand Lot's significance and why this story is here. But right now, first, I want us to focus on the blessing. God has not only preserved Abram, but he has greatly enriched Abram. Verse 2, now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. In Hebrew, the very rich is the same word from which we get the word glory. It's the word kabod. It literally says that Abram was very heavy with livestock, silver, and gold. He had great significance, great weight. He had great riches. And we need to pause to clarify that that's not a bad thing. Right? Our increasingly socialist-leaning culture loves to hate rich people. Uh, one major candidate has gained promise in prominence in part by arguing that billionaires shouldn't exist. And, and undergirding much of the rhetoric of almost an entire party is the increasing assumption that wealth is bad. Well, it's not. Now, of course, abuse and oppression are bad, but that's actually not a problem inherent to wealth. That's a problem inherent to people who sometimes misuse and abuse wealth. That is bad. They shouldn't do that. But it's not a problem inherent to wealth. It can be good to be wealthy if that wealth is used well. So it's not bad that Abram is rich. He is very rich. God has given him those riches. This is part of God's blessing to Abram. Now, that does not, of course, mean that God will bless all of us with such material riches. But we cannot assume that all wealth is ill-gotten gain. And we need to be careful of buying into much of our current cultural assumption that wealth is bad. That it's bad for some people to have more than others. It's not. As Henry put it in Sunday school last week, equity and equality don't require equivalence. That's good. So Abram, entirely of grace, has been blessed by God. And for him, in this instance, that blessing takes the form of material wealth. I am not promising you material wealth, but I am promising you blessing. Blessing, if you are in Christ, is what God promises you. God promises his people blessing. Yes, we must count the cost. Yes, we must take up our crosses. Yes, there will be self-denial and suffering. But that is all of it, not the end. But those are sometimes the means to the end, which is what? It's this. It's blessing. God is out to bless his people. God is out to bless you. We may not always like and desire the exact form of the blessing that God has promised, but that's not a problem with God's promise. That's a problem with our perspective. More on that on the end, at the end. But blessing is the point of this. God's promises are ultimately about his glory, but he brings himself glory by blessing his undeserving people. That's the point. God is out and working for your good. The promises are about blessing. But let's keep going. Because that's not all that God's promises bring. Look at verse 5. We're back to Lot. 
It says, and Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. Lot also had a lot last time. Why? Look at chapter 12 again, verses 2 and 3. Why does Lot have all this? Well, keep in mind, Abram is God's chosen vehicle of blessing. It is not only that God is going to bless Abram, but that God is going to bring blessing to others through Abram. So Lot is blessed by his association with Abram. And since the blessing for Abram takes the form of wealth in this instance, it takes the form of wealth for Lot in this instance as well. So Abram is wealthy. Lot is wealthy. And that creates a problem. Verse 6. The land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. Don't miss that word. Land. Here's a fun fact that I learned for the first time this week. Uh, That word, land, is the fourth most used noun in the whole Old Testament. It's it's land. If you start at the top, you always get and 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 things like that. Um, But the top four nouns used in the whole Old Testament are God, makes sense, king, Israel, and then land. That's pretty interesting. I could spend a lot of time on that. Uh, We haven't yet gotten to Genesis 17 and the third important covenant passage where God is going to narrow the promise of the seed down. And he's going to tell Abram in 17 verse 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations. This is the seed promise. And then he specifies and kings shall come from you. But I've never read anyone on this, so I'm just kind of sort of spitballing here. There's probably nothing to this. But the promises from God, the most used noun in the Old Testament, is ultimately about blessing. And that blessing takes the form of a seed and a land. The seed is about God's people, Israel, the third most used noun in the Old Testament, which is ultimately about and culminating in a king, the king, Jesus Israel, the second most used noun in the Old Testament. And then the other part of the promise is the land, the fourth most used noun in the Old Testament. I found that interesting. You're making some observations. I'm going to think through some of that some more. Uh, but, But land, fourth most used word, is obviously then a really important idea in the Old Testament. And here it is. God has promised Abram a land, but we've seen problems with the land. It is already filled with people. And we see that again in verse seven. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. And as a result of this, there's not enough room for both Abram and Lot in the land. It's a Western movie cliche. This town ain't big enough for the both of us. So verse seven, there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Verse 8, Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me. God's promises bring strife or conflict. What do I mean? And why is that? Well, again, of course, it's not a problem with the promises. The problem is people. The problem is sin. God promises to his promise to his people will inevitably bring them into conflict with those who are not his people. Think about the book of Joshua, when 400 years after this, God brings his people back into this land that he is promising here. And what must first happen? Conflict. God's people must drive out not God's people from the land. So his promise creates 
conflict. He's not just being mean. He's not just arbitrarily running out nice, sweet, innocent people from their land. He tells us why the Canaanites are being removed from the land. It's because of their iniquity. It's because of their wickedness. Among other things, they were sacrificing their children to their god Moloch. They were murdering their own children at the height of wickedness. And for that, and for many other reasons, God judges them. And he removes them from the land. Keep that in mind in light of what we talked about and prayed about last week. And our land's horrid practice of murdering over 60 million of our own children and sacrificing them to the gods of of freedom and of autonomy and of money. Keep that in mind. But the point is that the promise creates conflict. I wrote in the email on Thursday how conflict is actually at the very heart of Christianity. Again, not talking primarily about conflict with others, but with ourselves. Christians exist in a perpetual state of conflict. Christianity is conflict. Galatians 5, the desire, desires of the flesh are against the spirit. We were dead. Now by God's grace, we are alive. And if we are alive, we will be at war with the sin that remains. Only Christians experience this conflict. Dead people cannot be in conflict. And so by nature of God's promise to create a people for himself, to do that, he had to save a people from themselves, from their sin. Ephesians 2, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God made us alive together in Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And that saving grace brings us into blessed conflict with our sin nature. We were wicked for the holy God to have a people for himself, for him to be with us and us to be with him. We then have to be holy. That's what God is about, making us holy. And it's tragic how unappealing that sounds to us. Does that sound good to you? That's something that you desire and that you seek after, that I, I want to be holy. I can't wait to be holy. I can't wait to be more holy. But guys, holy is happy. Holy is like God. Holy is goodness. No more evil. No more injustice. No more anything that separates us from the God who is goodness and life. So God puts us into conflict with our sinful selves. But in doing that, in making us holy, God also then ends up putting in conflict uh, with others. And let me be clear, not that we are to seek conflict and create conflict with others. Lots of Christians are sadly great at that. That's not what I'm talking about. But in creating in us holiness, God ends up putting us into conflict with darkness. And that's the world. That's anyone apart from Christ. And so Jesus warns us in John 15, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, But I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. This is just basic stuff, right? Christians are supposed to be different. They're supposed to be set apart, not like the world and not loved by the world. If you fit in quite nicely with the world, if your thinking corresponds well with the world, if you are concerned with the approval of the world, be careful, be warned. Because God's promise brings strife. But look at how Abram responds to the strife. This is is wonderful. 
This becomes the focus of basically every sermon on this text. That's wrong, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't take note of this and be challenged by it. This is good Abram. This is faith succeeding Abram. This is his trusting and obeying. And don't miss that it comes right on the heels of God's undeserved grace and of Abram's response to that undeserved grace. Back to verse 8. Look there. Abram is speaking to Lot. Let there be no strife between you and me. Verse 9. Look at how he responds to the strife. Look at how he deals with conflict. Is not the whole land before you Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. Don't, don't miss how big this is. This is so much more than Abram handling conflict well. Sure, this is a great example of Philippians 2. Abram is counting others more significant than himself. He's, he's putting the interests of others before his own. We are not to create Conflict. We are to love our enemies. We are to turn the other cheek. We are to speak evil of no one. Avoid quarreling. Be gentle and show perfect courtesy toward all people. Blessed are the meek, merciful, pure in heart, peacemaker. Those are the characteristics of the citizens of Christ's kingdom. Are those the things that characterize you? But that's not at all what this section is about. It's about the promise. What is Abram really doing here? Ultimately, he is exercising faith in the promise of God. Remember, that was his failure last week. He let fear overcome faith. God had promised him a seed. God had promised to make Abram into a great nation. That obviously requires Abram to be alive. Yet Abram feared for his life. He didn't trust God's promise to protect his life. And in his unbelief, he took steps to try and take care of the promises himself. Not here. God has promised Abram a land, and it's this land, 12-7. He says, to your offspring, I will give this land. And so what Abram is ultimately doing in offering the choice to Lot, in putting the decision in his hand, he is ultimately putting the decision in God's hand. He is trusting God's word. God has said that he will give him his land. So instead of scheming this time, Abram is trusting God this time. This is faith. He's not at all worried. He's not anxious about what is going to happen. He leaves it to God and trusts that God will keep his word to give Abram his land in spite of any obstacle. So God's promise has brought strife. Abram has trusted God to do what he will. Well, which is what? What is God going to do? Number three. Keep going. God's promises bring Separation. Back to Lot now. Back to why Lot. Why is Lot given so much attention? Why are we spending a whole sermon on some minor land squabble? Again, it's because of the promises. It's all about the promises. Remember, look back in chapter 11. Lot is mentioned twice in 11.27 and 31. And then he's mentioned twice again in 12.4 and 12.5. And what's sandwiched there in the middle between those four mentions of Lot? It's the promises. We are being signaled here that Lot is going to have something to do, some sort of relationship with these promises. Lot's role, his uh, repeated inclusion is all about the promises. Think about what they are. What's the first promise? A seed, a son. What's the problem? 
Well, mentioned right in between the first two mentions of Lot, 1130. Now, Sarai was barren. She had no child. All right, so Abram has no seed. He has no son. And it sure seems like he never will because barrenness is generally a pretty specific barrier to bearing children. And so far, all God has told Abram regarding the promise of a seed is verse 2. I will make of you a great nation. Well, he doesn't have a son. Well, so maybe it's Lot. Abram has no son. Lot has no father. Lot travels with Abram, serving as a sort of son. And it was common practice in ancient times to adopt a son to be your heir. So maybe Lot is the heir. Maybe he is the one through whom God is going to fulfill his promise. Here we have an easy and obvious solution. Maybe Lot will be the son. Maybe Lot will get the land. Maybe not. Verse 9, again, back to Genesis 13. Abram has made his offer for Lot to choose the land. But don't miss how he puts it. Separate yourself from me. We've had strife twice. Now we have separate twice. God's promises bring separation. How does it go down? Look at verse 10. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. Verse 11. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. God's promises have brought separation. How? How does he do this? Well, it's through Lot's own choice. Abram has left it in his hands, leaving it ultimately in God's hands. But consider Lot's choice for a moment. A lot of guys really try and argue that this was a completely neutral Choice That this was an obvious and practical choice. Lot saw better land and he wisely chose the better land. So we cannot hold that against him. We cannot blame him for that choice. No. Wrong. That is a complete failure in basic reading comprehension. A complete failure to miss the obvious point. First off, Abram is the patriarch. Side note. The Bible is patriarchal, and that's good. Husbands are supposed to take responsibilities uh, to self-sacrificially love, lead, provide for, and protect the family. That's patriarchy, and it's good. So Abram is the elder, and Lot is supposed to honor and defer to him. He does not do that. He selfishly grabs what he perceives to be the choice land. But it's even worse than that. The text will not let us interpret this as a neutral decision. The text tells us what to think of this very obvious and very bad decision. It basically screams it at us. Did you notice that I didn't read all of verse 10, the rest of verse 10? This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, that doesn't sound good. Again, we're not left to choose what we think of Lot's choice. The text is telling us what to think of it with very obvious and impossible to miss foreshadowing. And in case verse 10 wasn't enough, it also gives us verse 13. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. And that's like a flashing red light and a divine voice coming over the loudspeaker yelling, this is a bad choice. And there's more. We saw in verse 11, and Lot journeyed east. Uh-oh. Remember, we've seen this before. In Genesis, east is always bad. 
I tried to warn when we were in Genesis 1 through 11, I tried to warn Jeremy and Francesca of this when they were considering moving far back east to Italy. East is bad. They listen. We love you guys. Come back west. Uh, Long Islanders, come back west. In the Bible, west is good. Remember Genesis 3, there has been sin. There has been separation from God. There has been ejection from the place and the presence of God. Where? What direction? Genesis 3, 24. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden, the direction from which the man went, he placed the cherubim. 4.16, Cain sins. Cain is rejected. Cain is cast out. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Od, east of Eden. One of the great book titles of all time, East of Eden. Go read that book. It's wonderful. East is bad. East is away from the presence of the Lord. So in all of that context, it happens in chapter 11 as well, in telling us that Lot journeyed east, the text is again signaling to us that this is very bad. This is away from and outside of the promised land. This is away from the presence of God. Lot has chosen poorly. And on what basis did he choose? Don't miss this. Look back at verse 10 and 11. Listen to how it's put. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the land was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the land was to be desired to make one wise. He took of it and he chose. Is that what it says? Well, actually, yes. Because in the way that is written, it is deliberately calling us back to and reminding us of Eve's sinful choice to reject God's word and to eat of the forbidden fruit. Lot is doing the exact same thing. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. I unintentionally offended our optometrist friends on Wednesday night when I made a joke about what scripture thinks about the eyes. It's not generally good. Uh, It's fairly accurate, as one person has put it, that whereas the Greeks thought with the eye, the Hebrews thought with the ear. Generally, in Scripture, eye is bad, ear is good. Seeing is bad, hearing is good. Listen to Luther. He says, if you ask a Christian what the work is by which he becomes worthy of the name Christian, he will be able to give absolutely no other answer than that it is the hearing of the word of God. That is faith. Therefore, the ears alone are the organs of a Christian man, for he is justified and declared to be a Christian, not because of the works of any member, but because of faith. The ears are the organ of the Christian. Abram has heard the word, the promises of God, and he has believed. That's faith. We walk by faith, not by sight. Lot has seen and he has chosen, and as we know, and as we're being signaled here, this turns out to be a devastating choice. Listen to Calvin on this verse. He says, let us then learn by this example that our eyes are not to be trusted, but that we must rather be on guard, lest we be ensnared by them and be encircled unawares with many evils. Just as Lot, when he fancied that he was dwelling in paradise was very nearly plunged into the depths of hell. Again, this faithful and sinful choice is going to have devastating consequences for Lot, for his wife, for his daughters, for Israel, and for entire nations for for centuries to come. And it just gets worse and worse. There's a progression. Here in 1312, we see Lot move as far as 
Sodom or, or near Sodom, as some of your translations may say. Next week in 1412, we're going to see that Lot is now living in Sodom. Then when we get back to Lot for part three in chapter 19, verse one, we're going to find Lot sitting in the gate of Sodom, meaning that Lot is now a person of some sort of influence or position in Sodom. He is a leader. He is a ruler. He is part of Sodom. It sounds like Psalm 1, the progression from walk to stand to sit. Lot sees and he chooses that which he thinks is best for him. And it will utterly ruin him and many for centuries to come. And so perhaps, and this isn't the main point of the text, but perhaps one thing we can learn from this is that we ought to have a healthy distrust of ourselves. You need to be healthily skeptical of yourself and of your own wisdom. We ought to be hesitant to trust too much in our own wisdom, in our own perception, and in our assessment of a situation. You think that you know what's good for you in a certain situation, what you need. What if you are completely and utterly incorrect? What if the thing right now that you are absolutely convinced is best for you is actually worst for you? What if the thing that you have set your eyes upon that looks good and is a delight to your eyes is anything but? What do your ears tell you? In other words, what does God's word tell you? Listen before you leap. Be careful. Be wise. Be discerning. Uh, memorize and practice living. Proverbs 3, 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own Understanding and how many of our mistakes are the result from our leaning on our own understanding. Be warned by Lot here. Your understanding is not so great. This is why we have God's word. This is what it looks like when Lot leans on his own understanding. So be warned. God's promises always bring separation. Lot has now been separated from Abram. He has been separated from the means of God's blessing, separated from the land, separated from the presence of God. Listen, I just want to be done with Lot. But at some point, we're going to have to deal with 2 Peter when Peter calls Lot righteous. We will come back to that and we will figure that out. But this is not righteous Lot. And if you likewise reject God's promise and refuse to submit to him and trust him, you too will find yourself separated from God, separated from his promises and cut off. But praise God that we don't have to stop there because let's go back to Abram. Point number four and the last. God's promises bring more and better blessings. Verse 12 uh, Lot leaves Abram. He's now settled in Canaan in the land. Look at verses 14 through 16. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you will see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth. So that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. This is more and better blessing. Now, this is obviously clearly connected to the promises of 12, 1 through 3. But this is the promise intensified, amplified, expanded. God has said he would make Abram into a great nation. Well, now God amplifies that in saying that he will make his offspring as the dust of the earth. Can you count the dust? 
Nope. That's how many offspring you're going to have, Abram. God has told Abram that he would give the land to his offspring. But this is actually the first time that God has promised that he would give the land specifically to Abram. All the land that you see, I will give to you. That's, that's, that's new. These are bigger and better blessings. The blessing hasn't changed, but God is now further revealing the true nature of those blessings. They are even bigger and better than Abram could have imagined. But I want us to think through that promise there where he tells Abram, and I think this will help explain how this is bigger and better for you. How can God say that he would give the land to Abram? It sure seems like he never actually gave the land to Abram. Well, it's because the land, this most important of concepts, this fourth most used noun in the Old Testament, as you hopefully know by now, was never ultimately about the land. This is why we read Hebrews 11. You can start to turn back there if you want. We're going to close with Hebrews 11. This is how much more. Hebrews 11 makes it clear how much more and better the blessings that God promised are. And I hope to do this in more detail sometime soon. I don't have time to justify and make the grace in great detail right now. But you've got to understand that the promise of the land was always about so much more than some little strip of land on the east coast of the Mediterranean. Why did Abram leave his land for this land? Because he understood that God's promises were about more and better things. Look at verse 10 of Hebrews 11. For, this is Abram, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Look at verse 13. He died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. That's what the land was about. Abram understood that the land was not about the land, but that the land was ultimately about the city. It was about a better country, a heavenly country, not a physical one. Hebrews 13, 14 says, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. God is always doing more and better things than you can even begin to imagine, than you can see. So listen to him. God wasn't just going to give Abram a small piece of land. The land was symbolic. It's a foreshadowing of the better land to come. Not just that small piece of land, but as Hebrews 11 tells us, and as Revelation 21 makes clear, all land. The new heavens and the new earth. God's promises are that big. Guys, we get caught up in concern with such little things. We get so upset when we don't get some relatively small thing in this life that we have seen and determined that we must have to live the good life. And I think sometimes, besides the sinful part of it, I think God just laughs at us. If we could only see 
If we could only see what he was doing, how big his plans are, how wonderful his promises are. This is why the prosperity gospel, and people told me not to use this word too much. I use it sometimes because it needs to use it sometimes. This is why the prosperity gospel is stupid, the S word. It's stupid, and it falls so short. God is not concerned to make you healthy, wealthy, and happy in this life. He is doing infinitely bigger and better things. The prosperity gospel doesn't promise too much. It promises infinitely too little. God is preparing you for eternity. He's preparing to give you everything, a new heavens and a new earth. This heavens and earth fixed, purified, perfected, all the bad stuff gone. No more evil, no more sin, no more suffering, no more tears, no more death. He is going to give it all to his people. But ultimately, as we see in Revelation 21, as God ushers in this new age, what he is doing, what the new heavens and earth are all about, is him. This is what the land is pointing us to. The land is the place where God is. And Revelation 21 tells us, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Guys, that's the point. And that's the best thing. This is what God is doing for you. That's what his promises are ultimately about. Every promise is ultimately about making this possible, about more and better blessings, which is perfect, unending life with God himself, the God of all good and all glory with us, for us, forever. Do you want that? And honestly answer that question for yourself. Is that something that you live for and that you long for, to be with God? Because that's what all of this is about. That's what Christianity is about. That's what the gospel is about. God is the gospel. He is the good news. It's what he has done through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ to rescue us and to return us to him. That's the good news. And that's what he promises. That's even ultimately what these promises are about. What he's going to do to get his people back and to be with them. Is that what you are excited about? Is that what gets you up in the morning? Does that bring you joy? Does that move you and motivate you? Be encouraged from Genesis 13 that God will do this. Genesis 13 is confirming for us that God will accomplish all his purposes, that he will always preserve and perform his promises. And he promises that in Christ, that all things are working together for your good. He promises to make you like Christ. And again, that's the best thing. He promises to never leave you or forsake you. He promises to come for you and to live with you forever. God himself is the more and better blessing that he promises. Christ is the one that brings us to God, which is why Paul will be able to say that the gospel is preached beforehand to Abraham. Because these promises are all about getting us to Christ. So learn to live in light of his eternity-securing promises. Learn to live your life based upon hearing, not seeing, not leaning upon your own understanding, but trusting in the Lord who always keeps his word and who always fulfills his good and great promises. If you would, bow with me and let's close by going to this God uh, in prayer.
Father, we thank you that you are faithful. Thank you for being faithful to us even today in sustaining us and giving us this opportunity to gather together and hear from your word. Father, I pray now and ask that your word would do its work. I pray that you would uh, comfort the discouraged. I pray that you would rebuke uh, the rebellious. Father, I pray that you would assure the doubting. Father, forgive us for how quick we are to forget the promises that you have made. Forgive us for how uh, fearful, unbelieving we often are. Teach us, Lord, to live not by faith, not by sight, but by faith, not by seeing, uh, but by hearing. Teach us that our entire lives are safe and secure, and that our entire eternity is safe and secure, because you have promised, Father, and you always do what you have said. And I pray that we would remember that. I pray that we would not remember that basic, simple truth just right now. But as we get to Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday, things get frustrating. Our minds get set on other things and things go poorly. Father, remind us that you are even in those things and that you are working even in those things and that you are still faithful and good even in those things. Father, teach us to cling to your promises and to trust you in all that we do. Father, we cannot do this for ourselves. I cannot uh, do this for myself or, or for anyone in here. So, Father, help us. Uh, change our hearts. Uh, convince us. Show us uh, where we are so doubtful and unbelieving. And, Father, strengthen and bolster our faith by what we have learned uh, about you and about your goodness and about your faithfulness this morning. And we ask and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.